Lord, thank you for this church, uh, the group that was able to make it this morning. I know a lot of people are still out of town, including our pastor, Lord. Um, but thank you for those who, who are here um, and um, were able to uh, get back and enjoy some fellowship with each other and start this new year as a body. Uh, we do pray for those who aren't here as well for safe travels back, wherever they are. Uh, we pray that uh, the message this morning is edifying to those here. Um, I pray that you would use my words um, to reach those here and um, have it be useful. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm calling this a homily. This is kind of the joke, right? So I, I'm, I'm not presenting a sermon today. Um, it's actually a homily. If you don't know what a homily is, it's a, <laughs> something like that. A homily is, uh, it's not necessarily doctrinal, as a sermon might be. It's more for spiritual edification, more thematic, maybe, idea. So that's what, you know, what we're going to do today. Uh, but maybe one of the key elements, too, of a homily is it's short, or shorter than a uh, typical sermon. So we're not going to go an hour today, uh, probably something uh, about half that or maybe a little less. So... I, uh, I'm calling this homily, uh, The Power of Paradox and God Using the Weak. This is a theme that I've always loved, the power of paradox, the idea of paradox in Scripture. It is all over Scripture, and we'll just touch the surface uh, just a little bit today um, about this, this great idea. But God uses paradox. He uses um, uh, yeah, the paradox all through Scripture to carry out his plans. Uh, so we'll see a bit of that today. So what is, what is paradox? Uh, a paradox is a statement that appears to be absurd, contradictory, or inconsistent, but nonetheless reveals a deeper truth. There's different, there are different kinds of paradox, but that's kind of the one I'm going to roll with today. A statement that appears to be absurd, contradictory, or inconsistent, but nonetheless reveals a deeper truth. Um, sometimes it's two opposites but that are both two opposite things but are still true, okay? Um, so uh, examples in culture, we have uh, these, these phrases, the only constant is change. The more you give, the more you get. The louder you are, the less they hear. Less is more. Uh, George Orwell wrote a fable in 1945, many, many of you know this, Animal Farm. It was a fable uh, making a political statement about Stalin's version of, of Soviet communism. And one of the things in there, one of the quotes in there is, all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. And then many of you know Yogi Berra, the famous baseball player, Hall of Fame catcher, his yogiisms really are, a lot of them are paradoxes. And a couple I'll give you that he said, always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't go to yours. <laughs> and then my favorite yogiism, um, when asked about a highly regarded restaurant in St. Louis, he said, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. So the Bible is full of paradoxes, and I'm going to give you a few examples here in Scripture. So uh, the first uh, 
And Jesus gives several of them. So first here is Matthew 23, 11 through 12. Jesus says, but the greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Mark 9, 35, Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Luke 17, 33, Jesus says, whoever strives to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Paul says, therefore, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distress, in persecution, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 1 Peter 5, 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, the joy of trials. It's contradictory, but there's a truth there. But the most important paradox, I think, here in Scripture has to do with salvation, the gospel message. The people who think they are righteous will be declared unrighteous by God, and those who declare their unrighteousness will be declared righteous by God. This is demonstrated in Galatians 2.16, which says, knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In continuing the point, Jesus tells a parable here in Luke about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Many of you know this. I'll read it. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the, one who, rather than the other one, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. According to Jesus, the man who the world would say deserves heaven by all outward appearances will not see it. And the one reviled by the world will be welcomed in heaven. The gospel itself is a paradox. It's beautiful. And we shouldn't be surprised. This is unexpected, right? It's a paradox. This is unexpected. We wouldn't think this would be true, but we shouldn't be surprised that God uses the unexpected to carry out his plan for saving the world. It's his modus operandi. And we see other aspects of scripture, other aspects of how he works in history where he carries out the unexpected. He uses unexpected people. He uses unexpected events. And I'll give you some more examples of that. Moses was an unexpected person. God told Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses multiple times questioned God. He said he was not the right man for the job. He wasn't eloquent. But God used him anyway. 
to face Pharaoh, deliver his people, part the Red Sea, give the Ten Commandments, and lead the people to the cusp of the promised land. David, David was unexpected. We look at his life. David was not the man anyone would have picked to be king. Samuel, who was charged with finding uh, the, the king, um, went to all of Jesse's sons. You remember this? He goes to Jesse's house, and there's a review of all the sons, from the oldest to the youngest. The youngest was David. He wasn't around. He was out tending the sheep. And each man, each son passed by Samuel, and Samuel said, nope, that's not the right one, not the right one. And Jesse said, well, I do have one other son, but that's just David. He's out tending the sheep. But Samuel said, we'll bring him in. So he brings him in. David, the youngest, was the one who was accepted by God. And what does David do? He later slays Goliath, becomes a great warrior, and becomes one of the greatest kings of Israel. Deborah, many of you don't know or maybe don't know much about Deborah, but a woman who was a prophet in the Old Testament, very shocking in this time period, uh, acted as a prophet and a judge in Israel at a time when women did not have the same social status as men. Elijah, a prophet from the wrong side of the river, wrong side of the river Jordan, had moments of great fear and despondency. Rahab, a prostitute, not an Israelite, but she saved the lives of the Israelite spies. Later, she marries an Israelite and ultimately is part of the direct lineage to Jesus Christ himself. Unexpected. The boy with five loaves and two fishes. Two fish, fishes. The boy with five loaves and two fish. Unexpected. Unexpectedly, Jesus uses him to take that food and feed thousands. Peter, not the expected person to lead the church. He's a simple fisherman with a bad temper. He denies Jesus three times, but what? Later boldly proclaims the gospel to the point of his own death. Saul, the persecutor of the early Christian church, not the person you would expect God to work through, but what? He becomes God's key apostle in spreading the gospel to all the nations. On and on it goes. I'm scratching the surface here. There's plenty of examples in scripture, again, of people who God uses in unexpected ways. We just celebrated Christmas. Christmas itself is unexpected. There are so many aspects to it, and I think Mike even talked about this two or three weeks ago in one of his sermons, but Christmas is, is unexpected. It, was, it came about unexpectedly. Jesus was from Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? It's a backwater town. He came from a poor family. They didn't have much. His mother, Mary, was unwed, a virgin. Jesus is ultimately born in a feeding trough, in a cave. This is not how the Messiah was supposed to come if you were a Jew back in those days. 
His birth was not announced to the Jewish leaders. He wasn't announced. It wasn't announced to the Pharisees. It wasn't announced to the Sadducees. Who was it announced to initially? Shepherds. The lowly shepherds. The bottom of society. This is how God works. He works in events too. Not just Christmas, other events. In the Old Testament, Joseph's brothers plan to kill him. Instead, what? They sell him into slavery? He later saves Egypt and the surrounding regions from famine, including his own family. Jericho, the Canaanite city fortified by two walls, two tall and thick walls. How do you conquer Jericho? Through weaponry? No. God has the Israelites blowing trumpets and marching around the city. That's not how you conquer cities. But that's how God conquers cities. The unexpected. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well outside of her town. She was an outcast from the other women of the town. That meeting with Jesus impacts her to the point she spreads his message to her entire village and many there come to believe in him. Actually, the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates a particular day of the year as part of their holy calendar that celebrates her ministry to her town and her spreading the gospel there. So what's the big idea there? It's all about It's all about God, so that no one can boast, right? It's not about us. It's not about the people who did it. It's about God working working for his purposes in unexpected ways. The cross is also unexpected. It's a paradox. It's a paradox of shame and glory. The cross was full of shame. Shame, the ultimate display of weakness. The cross was reserved only for non-Roman citizens. They wouldn't let citizens be hung up on a cross. Primarily, it was for slaves and political activists. The shame of the cross also involved being naked, fully exposed, mocked. It was a public spectacle. The shame, the shame of suffering. The cross wasn't a quick death. It was typically hours of suffering. The word excruciating comes from the root word cross. There's a reason we have the word excruciating. Excruciating describes the pain suffered on the cross. The shame of the cross also, most disciples abandoned him. They fled in fear. The shame also, taking on the full weight of sin of the world. All of that sin fell on him on the cross. But it's glory. This is how God used, this is how God glorified Jesus through his suffering and death on the cross. Not just the shame, but the glory. God, Jesus fulfilled his purpose for coming into the world, to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. And now what? He's in glory, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Glory brings us salvation and eternal life through the shame. We too are glorified. Glory of the cross also reorients our way of thinking and living. You know this is foolishness to the world, all of this? The cross is a stumbling block, we know that. It's a stumbling block to those who are perishing, to those who are not Christian 
This is foolishness. The cross is foolishness to the world. I'm going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians that makes this point. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of those who have understanding. I will confound. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind, and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." And then chapter two, when I, and, when I come, and when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. This is Paul speaking. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling. And in my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind but on the power of God. What do we learn from this passage? God delights in confounding the wise. Again, no one can boast. The only thing we can do is boast in Christ. Believers need to make themselves ready and available to confound the world. Don't count yourselves as inferior. When we do, we, are, we also count God as incapable of empowering us to do his work. Nobody's inferior here, church. We're a small church. None of us are inferior. God can and will use anyone. And we are in a world that more than ever needs Jesus. So be ready. And the world will see you as a fool. The world's views are not God's views. The world's ways are not God's ways. In fact, if your beliefs fall in line with the secular world, check your beliefs. The world finds peace in earthly comforts. Christians find peace in Christ. The world is motivated by greed. 
Christians find contentment in what we have. The world seeks to earn grace through good works. Christians do good works as a response to grace. The world seeks temporary pleasure. Christians persevere through difficult times. The world believes, this is as an example of temporary pleasure, the world believes marriage is for as long as you both show love. Christians take to heart that marriage is for as long as you both shall live. The world isolates or associates only with those like them. Christians are called to community with all types of people and to share our lives with each other. The world finds its identity and worth in earthly attributes. Gender, race, marital status, sexual orientation, career, wealth, wealth, social status. Christian, we find our identity in Christ. The world strives for perfection. That's me. The world strives for, for perfection. Christians strive for authenticity. Lord, help me. Salvation allows us to confess our sins and not live in shame. The world believes in the perfectibility of man. Utopia is possible. We just need the right government system. We just need the right leaders. We just need the right education, the right laws. Christians believe in a fallen world with fallen people, perfectible only through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The world puts family and career first. Christians put God first. The world tries to save itself through a plurality of gods. Christians know we are saved only through Jesus Christ. Church, are you living as fools in this world? Do we believe what the world says? Or do we believe what the Bible says? They're different things. Especially here in Seattle, it's hard. We live in a very, very secular world. Do we believe what the world says or do we believe what the Bible says? Anyone know who Michael Card is? I said that name. Debbie? Okay, one. Christine? Yeah? Bob? Yes. One of my, uh, he, he's an old singer-songwriter from the, uh, the 80s, Gen X, my era. Um, he was known for his rich lyrics. He's still alive, by the way. Um, he wrote El Shaddai by, uh, for, for, Mike, for Amy Grant, if you know that song. Um, he wrote a song entitled God's Own Fool that I love. And I'm going to read the lyrics to you. I won't sing it. Uh, but, I, but I will. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. Uh, but I'll read the lyrics to you because it's not kind of on point here. Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad, and the priests said a demon's to blame. But God in the form of this angry young man could not have seemed perfectly sane. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool, and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool 
for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. And you'll have the faith his first followers had and you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know, have the courage to say I believe, for the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. So we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. So come be a fool with me, church. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to speak. I pray that it was useful to those here. I pray it was glorifying to you. We thank you that you work through the most inferior ways, people, people that society has cast aside. We thank you that you have given us your son to die on the cross. We thank you that you show up in unexpected ways. So Lord, help us to see those ways in our daily lives. Help us to look for opportunities to be used by you to carry out your your gospel, to spread your gospel, to further your kingdom. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.